Well, 54 years ago now, I began to work in uh, the Church of God's personal correspondence department, and I've worked in that off and on over a number of years since, including much of the years of our history as a church in the Church of God, a worldwide association. I'd like to invite all of you today to participate with me in uh, looking at some of the questions that have come to the church on a very specific subject. Uh, we can start the first slide, if you would, please. I want you to put your counselor hats on, and I'm going to have you read several requests from people who wanted to be rebaptized, not baptized, but rebaptized a second or maybe an additional time after a second time. You'll notice as we go through here that some of these people have understanding of baptism and understanding of part of God's truth. And I want to have you consider whether these people should be rebaptized. I've underlined certain critical areas of the comments that came in from the people that, that speak to things that we would talk about if we were talking with somebody about whether to be rebaptized. Uh, this first person writes about understanding that his sins or her sins were washed away, <clears throat> showing the world I was saved. Those things are true about baptism. But then he goes on to say, I did not know about the Holy Spirit at the time. Now that raises a flag of, oh, maybe that's a reason why we should talk further. Next person. Remembers the mother talking about him or her being baptized as a young child, but this person doesn't even remember it with certainty. Doesn't even know if he was baptized. Well, we're probably gonna to have to talk more with that person. Third one, this person was baptized right way, by full immersion, in the name of the Father and the Son, that's good. The Holy Ghost, not so good. Raises a flag and say, well, maybe the understanding is not full with that person. We might want to talk more. The pastor is warning this person that the Lord is telling her, that means her, the pastor, it is a female pastor, and uh, that God is talking to this pastor and giving counsel about what to do about the baptisms. Send some more flags off there. We're gonna to have to talk with this individual further. The person was baptized, however, in the name of Jesus Christ and says correctly, that's the right baptism. And then again, a reference to the pastor, she said. Next person got baptized as a teenager. Okay, we don't usually baptize teenagers in the church. But then he goes on to say something even more concerning. At the time, I was having a sexual affair at the time of the baptism. The person wasn't repentant. Three years later, the person apparently did repent and start uh, changing his or her life, and then mentions that she wasn't or he wasn't really repentant at the time. Last case. This person's already been rebaptized and wants to have another go at the tank, or the pool, or the ocean, or wherever it was done. I want to redo it because I did not repent properly. Well, maybe that's a reason for rebaptism. Person believes he was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is good, but now is struggling with disobedience and struggling with other things that uh, he's working on. He's prayed for help and hasn't gotten it and doesn't know exactly what to do. Okay, that's all we need for the, the slides. How many of you people think that these people would need to talk further about potentially being rebaptized? You think there's a chance that some of these would need to be rebaptized? How many of you think all of them probably need to be rebaptized? Okay. How many of you are too shy to put up your hand for anything <laughs> except free lunch? No, okay, just kidding. There is a scripture that talks about the baptism, uh, it talks about rebaptism. And what I'd like you to think about today is not the rebaptism of people who are coming to us from the outside and were baptized by the Baptists or the Methodists or sprinkled uh, in some organization. I'd like you to think about being rebaptized in the Church of God. Is there such a thing as rebaptism in the church? Acts chapter 19 speaks of this. It talks about a group of people, 12 people are mentioned here in the first seven verses, 12 people who were met by the apostle Paul and the scripture says these men were believers. And it also says that after some discussion, 
the Apostle Paul rebaptized them. And we'll look at that in more detail in a few minutes. But first, I want to address the thought of why in the world anybody would ever consider being rebaptized after having been baptized in the Church of God. Some of you are thinking, well, that's absurd. That just would never be done. It doesn't happen. Others of you are thinking, frankly, well, I have heard of people talk about that. And some of you are thinking, you know, I've had doubts about the validity of my baptism, and I've been discouraged about it at different times, and it's a subject of interest to me. Here are some circumstances, situations, that have caused people to question their conversion. You realize that your repentance at baptism was comparatively shallow and superficial. They look back and they say, oh boy, I just really didn't know all that was involved at the time. You underwent baptism counseling at the same time as your spouse. And frankly, your spouse was much more devoted and much more committed and much more interested in the truth than you were. And you just went along. Right now, you're struggling with a habitual sin that you had at the time of baptism, but you thought you had put it away and overcome it. Now it's come back. You're now struggling with meaningful Bible study. That is, you struggle to find meaningful Bible study, and it just is not happening for you. Similarly, you are struggling to find meaningful um, prayer. You find yourself praying about yourself or people very close to you very easily, just saying those same things over and over, but not really praying the way you think you should. You don't feel you belong to any particular group. You may be a young adult, but you don't see yourself as part of the young adults. You may be single, you don't see yourself as single. You may be married, but you don't fit in with married people. You may have a family, you don't feel you fit in with the families. Maybe a widow or widower, but you, you just are depressed even thinking about uh, that particular group and you don't see yourself as part of that. Maybe you've committed a grievous sin and you feel that that has nullified your conversion and you need to do something about that. In general, you're not obeying God the way you know you should on the holy days, feast days, or in general, you just know that you are not living the way you hear of other Christians live and you hear of it spoken of in church or read about in the church literature. Another reason might be that the minister who baptized you left the church himself. That can be pretty discouraging. And here's another very real one that we do come across. You left the faith for a long time, maybe for years, and then you come back. Should you be rebaptized? All of these things or variations of them may be cases that you could debate and you could discuss and talk about and say, well, I could make a good case for being rebaptized under these circumstances because it would revive my, my spiritual commitment, it would uh, inspire me, it would get me going again. I, I'd publicly say that I really want to do what I need to do. It would really light the fire underneath me. Yeah, well, maybe people would feel better about that. That wouldn't be the reason why we would establish a procedure in the church or establish a doctrine. Doctrine has to be based on the scripture. Doctrine comes from the Bible. What does God's word say about rebaptism? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at this in some detail, see what it says, see what it does not say. And I'd like you in the course of the sermon <clears throat> to be thinking about whether what we read here is a precedent that is a guideline for the church to follow or whether it is there as a matter of history for us to consider for other reasons. You know, some things are mentioned in the Bible only one time that do set doctrine for us. I'll give you just one example. John chapter 13 mentions a ceremony or a custom that we follow by ceremony every year at the Passover, the washing of each other's feet. It's the only place that that's mentioned. And yet just one mention is enough. And we follow it, teach it appropriately as a doctrine. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse one, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul having passed through the upper regions came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, these were believers, followers of God. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they said, we never even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. What do you mean? He said to them, into what were you, then were you baptized? They answered, into John's baptism. 
Then Paul said, well, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and Paul laid his hands on them. God's spirit came on them. It says they spoke in tongues. That's a different subject. I won't get into that. It gives a number of them here in verse 7. There were 12 men there altogether. Baptized into John's baptism. What does that mean? First of all, we should note that John's credentials were unimpeachable. This was not a, a different church, a different religious teacher who taught doctrine or ways other than God's. Jesus himself said there was none greater born among women than John the Baptist. These 12 had repented. It mentions that John's was a baptism of repentance. I think sometimes it can be tempting to oversimplify this and say, well, here's the, here's the situation. These men were baptized by John's baptism, therefore they had to be baptized by Christ's baptism, and the one you get God's Holy Spirit and the other you don't, that's, that's the end of the story. I don't think that's the end of the story. I think there's more here than meets the eye. It's not necessarily true that when you're baptized with Christ's baptism, you would receive the Holy Spirit. I'll show you that. It's not necessarily true that when you're baptized with John's baptism, that you would not receive the Holy Spirit. I'll show that to you as well for you to think about. Some commentators make false comparisons between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. They say that John's was a baptism of repentance, and that was negative. Jesus's was a baptism of grace and forgiveness, and that was positive. You've got to transition from the same old approach of the harsh Old Testament on into the New Testament, and, and John was just not quite there yet. Well, actually, you'll find as we look into the Bible in more detail, the baptisms were quite similar. What did the, the Gospel of Mark say about Christ when he began to preach? What's the first thing that he said? Repent and believe the Gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus taught repentance. Some might not realize that John, in addition to teaching repentance, also taught about the kingdom of God. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3. We're going <clears> to <throat> look at more of these uh, scriptures in context here as we go along. I'm just going to read a little bit of uh, a few of them from Matthew and John. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How much did John understand about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven? How much did he, did he talk? We'll, we'll see as we go along here. The implication is he understood a great deal. That he told people why to repent. It wasn't just a matter of saying, okay, this is the baptism of repentance. Line up here and get baptized or get dunked, and that's all there is to it. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Some historians teach the Jews baptized Gentile proselytes. And because John was familiar with that practice, he incorporated that into his ministry, so he baptized people who were being converted. Other historians say it's not clear that that ever happened. It's just not clear that Gentiles were baptized by Jews when they were proselytizing. What these other historians suggest is that John created the doctrine of baptism or the practice of baptism uh, after the pattern of ritual purification from the Old Testament statutes. And that's where it came from. Neither is true because neither explanation fits baptism the way John did it. He baptized much more than Gentiles. He baptized many, many Jews. We'll read about that. Also, he did not repeat the baptism. No, no record of John repeating the baptism. Uh, now we, we get it in, in Acts chapter 19. But with John's practice... If it was a baptism of purification, people would need to be baptized every time they sin. Just as in the Old Testament, every time people became unclean, they needed to go through a purification ceremony. John himself answered the question why he baptized. Let's look at John chapter 1. 
this could be confusing as we go to the Gospel of John. We're talking about John. We're talking about John the Baptizer and reading about him in the Gospel of John. They were different men. John 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? We can't figure you out. Your camel hair coat and your locust lunch, you know, you're a strange dude. They probably didn't say dude. Uh, But they couldn't figure him out, so they asked him, quizzed him, you know, who who are you? Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you that prophet that Deuteronomy 18 prophesied? No, I'm I'm not uh, that one, and I am not the Messiah. Well, who are you then, they asked him. Verse 25, they asked him specifically, why then do you baptize? if you're not Christ, Elijah, or that prophet. And Jesus answered them, or John answered them saying, here's the answer. Here's why John baptized. I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Betharba beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water to reveal who the Messiah was and to do more, as we will see. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit coming from heaven like a dove. Wait a minute. These men who were baptized after John's baptism had never heard of the Holy Spirit. Ever ask yourself how that could be when John preached about the Holy Spirit coming through Jesus? They missed uh, some classes there that John gave. I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. That is the spirit remained upon Christ. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, you catch that? He who sent me to baptize with water. John did not baptize because Jews baptized Gentiles. John did not baptize because in the Old Testament there were purification rituals. God inspired him to baptize. We don't know exactly how God communicated this, but God did tell John, I want you to baptize. And John began that practice. He sent me to baptize with water. He said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. We know that Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit and will with fire baptize some people. That's in addition to the water baptism. John's ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah's ministry. Uh, John quoted there that I read to you earlier from from Matthew. He quoted Malachi 3. He quoted Isaiah 40, the prophesy about preparing the way for the Messiah to come, the messenger who comes before the Messiah. Apparently, in the first century time, around that time in history, when a dignitary visited an area coming from, you know, like from Rome, for example, a Roman dignitary coming into Judea, Uh, someone would come before him to prepare literally the highway. And rough places would be made plain and hills would be brought low. Ditches that needed to be filled in for the sake of the conveyance to drive over would be filled in. A pathway would be made so that the dignitary could travel unencumbered. John was preparing a pathway so that Jesus could travel unencumbered. The Jews were looking for a political deliverer a political liberator. John came to tell them that first there needed to come a spiritual deliverer, a spiritual liberator. Now Christ will be a a political deliverer, political small p, meaning Christ will set up a government and will govern the earth, but there were spiritual things that had to be done before, and that was John's ministry. He taught repentance. He taught baptism. He taught the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ taught repentance. He taught baptism. He taught the kingdom of God. Christ continued some fundamentals that John began. Christ continued on the pathway that John created 
being the one who was to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. You recall the well-known Count the Cost scriptures from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. These scriptures are gone over in baptism counseling. Uh, three times there, three different ways, Christ said to people who came to him wanting to be his disciples, unless you, and fill in the blank, you know, you love me, you love God more than father or mother, sisters and brothers, unless you're willing to give up your life, etc., you cannot be my disciple. That does not fit in with modern theology, evangelical theology, which says whosoever will may come. You just come to Christ, give your heart to him, and that's it. You're, you're a part of things. You're, you're on the train going up, you know, at the end of your life. Here we find Jesus saying, not everybody who wanted to be a disciple could be. Do you know that John did the same thing? Matthew chapter 3. Let's go back there and, and read a little bit more in the context. John also did not welcome everybody who came to him wanting to be a disciple. He did not baptize everybody who wanted to be baptized. Just because they kept the Sabbaths, just because they kept the holy days, just because they tithed, did not mean that he would baptize them. Matthew chapter 3, pick it up in verse 7 now. When he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, many Pharisees and Sadducees, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, you, you don't qualify just because of your, your heritage. You don't get to be the front of the line here. You're not going to be a part of, of the believers just because uh, you are a descendant of Abraham or you're an official, in an official position. I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even the axe, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, uh, meaning you fellows are being dealt with here and, and not being honored or accepted by God. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see the same approach that Christ uh, established later and that his ministers taught later. They had to repent of what? Well, there had to be some teaching that they had to repent of something. They had to bring forth fruits. What did those fruits look like? There had to be some explanation of what those fruits looked like. There had to be some interaction to determine that those people were actually bringing forth those fruits in their lives. It wasn't just a line up, get baptized. Line up, get baptized. How many did we do today? Well, we did 400 today. That's good. It wasn't a uh, mass production deal. Just baptize everybody who came. I don't need to read further there. You can read that further to get uh, more of the context. Scripture says that people, I do want to pick it up in verse 5 though, people were coming and confessing their sins. Jerusalem and all Judea, it says in verse 5, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. Before we talk about confessing the sins, notice that people came from all Judea and beyond Jordan, these were not just Gentiles that John baptized. It, it doesn't, pardon the pun, hold water to say that John picked up the custom of baptism from Jews baptizing Gentiles. John baptized Jews. And the fact that people confessed their sins again shows that there was some measure of self-awareness on the part of these people, some awareness of what their sin was, some realization that they needed to change, and because John was requiring fruits of repentance from the Sadducees, Sadducees and Pharisees, clearly he would require repentance from these others as well. So you, you, you get the sense that there was, well, frankly, there was a similar interaction to what you and I know in our experience in the Church of God today. At one point, John and Jesus' disciples were baptizing converts at the same time, and they knew that each other was doing that. We find this in John's Gospel in chapter 3. I don't know that they could actually see each other. I, I, I tried to narrow this down. Uh, we know that John baptized in the Jordan because there was a lot of water there. Well, logically, that would be the area where Christ would go as well. But I do know that that they were doing this at the same time. We can read this in John 3, 
verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now we read in chapter 4, John, or Christ didn't personally baptize. His disciples did the baptism. John also was baptizing in Aon, or, or Enon, near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. John was not yet thrown in prison. So John's disciples, Jesus' disciples, baptizing uh, right at the same time. Notice in verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. The Jews did not understand. The Jews in the public, not those who came and counseled with John, the Jews in the public did not understand what John's baptism was, similar to what we find today, until we sit in council with people and people study God's word and learn what it says, people don't have a clear understanding of the purpose of baptism or how to prepare for it. They came to John, verse 26, and said to him, Rabbi, who, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have been testified, to whom to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and notice verse 2 says it's disciples actually who did the baptizing, not John, but, but focus on that, that statement. John, or Jesus and his disciples baptized more than John. Remember what we read in Matthew chapter 3? How many people came to John to be baptized? It says they came from all Judea and beyond Jordan. Throngs of people, multitudes of people came. I know often we mention that when Christ uh, died and was resurrected and the day of Pentecost came, there were 120 who remained faithful at that time. We don't often focus on the fact that there were a huge number of people who were baptized, not just who, who followed Christ, who were baptized by Christ, that is, by Christ's disciples. And then they fell away before the time came for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Just an amazing footnote to history. Baptism was not a passing or temporary thing unique to John. It was an integral part of the Church of God, of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and remains so in the Church of God to this day. It's very important. So we got to get this right. If it's necessary to be rebaptized for the sake of a valid baptism, then we should do it. When Jesus gave the commission to his disciples at the end of Matthew 28, you're probably familiar with these words. I'll just read them again to you. Verses 18 to 20, Matthew 28. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. From the very first interaction between the first apostles and people who were being called after the day of Pentecost, they baptized. They taught people to be baptized. Acts chapter 2. Again, very familiar to you. Acts 2, verse 38. People were, were convicted Hearing Peter's sermon, said, what do we do, Peter? Peter answered and said, repent. So Christ's disciples were teaching a message of repentance, but also a message of baptism. Let every one of you be baptized. Baptism in the church of God is a baptism of repentance. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. In verse 41, after hearing this, people who gladly received this were baptized and the number that single day, that one day, was about 3,000. If it were not necessary to baptize, if it were just a, 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 for, a, a passing ceremony, inconsequential ceremony, why go to all the trouble to work out water and towel and time and effort to baptize 3,000 people? That took a lot of time, a lot of coordination to do. It shows how important it was. We find in Hebrews 6, just a reminder for you, 
that baptisms, the doctrine of baptisms, is one of the fundamental doctrines of the Church of God, remains so to this day. So what we see is instead of a, a, a sharp difference between John's ministry and Christ's, we see a bridge between the two. As John said, I came to prepare a way and where a bridge needs to be created, I do. And indeed, John did bridge and introduce the ministry that Christ would have. I said I'd show you that not everyone baptized by Christ's disciples would receive the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Acts chapter 8 and see a specific example of that. Obviously, many of those multitudes who were baptized by Christ's disciples uh, did not continue on to Pentecost and receive the Holy Spirit at that time. I've always wondered if some of them, many of them, I hope, would come along into the faith eventually. Acts chapter 8, we read of Philip, a deacon at this time, going into the area of Samaria. He was a disciple of Christ. He was not uh, a minister at this time yet. But he did uh, counsel people, preach to them, and he did baptize. Verse 9, we pick up on uh, one particular individual here, a man called Simon. He previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria. Apparently, he was an impressive guy. He claimed that he was someone great, or the people claimed that he was someone great. They all gave heed to him from the least to the greatest, and they said, This man is the great power of God. They heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized, and Simon also himself believed and was baptized by the disciples of Christ. He believed the gospel, and he was baptized. Well, Philip did not lay hands on the people to receive God's spirit. The apostles came down from Jerusalem to do that. When they came to Simon, they wouldn't do it. Peter refused to lay hands on Simon. Verse 20, Peter said to him, your money perish with you because Simon offered a little bribe here, not just for the Holy Spirit, but to have the office of being able to give the Holy Spirit. You thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God and tells him to repent. He already repented, and he believed, and he was baptized. He's being told again, or he's being told that he has to repent again. Why? What's the critical issue? Verse 21 mentioned it. His heart was not right when he was baptized. Remember the example that among these that we saw here earlier? The young person said that he was involved in a sexual affair at the time that he was baptized and didn't repent of it for several years afterwards. His heart was not right when he was baptized. That was a fraudulent thing. He came as if to say, I am repentant, I will follow God's way of life, but he was definitely not doing it and not intending to do what he should do at that time. Let's review your baptism. Uh-oh, getting personal. Was your heart right at the time of your baptism? Now, some might say, well, it's just not correct to even question that. Well, there's, there's no problem. And as I mentioned earlier, let's acknowledge the fact that some people do question it. And because they question it, that question needs to be answered. Undoubtedly, you were spiritually immature. I mean, the reason you were baptized is to receive God's spirit. So if you now decide, looking back, you didn't have much spiritual maturity, we want to go, duh? Well, yeah, that, that's right. You wouldn't because you get spiritual maturity from having God's spirit and practicing it with it, living by it. Sure, you were not spiritually mature. But that doesn't mean that your baptism was necessarily shallow or that you were holding back. I'd like to rehearse with you the words that were spoken at your baptism, just to remind us all how serious that matter was, that event was. It was said, th these words were said, as a result of your repentance of your sins. So there was some discussion about what repentance is and what your sins were and the fact that you had turned from them. 
which are the transgression of God's holy and perfect law. That was spelled out and discussed. And your acceptance of Jesus Christ as your personal savior, your Lord and master, your high priest and soon coming king, I now baptize you not into any sect or denomination of this world, but into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I do this in and by and through the, the name and the authority of Jesus Christ for the remission of all of your sins. Amen. They're pretty serious words. And what leads up to them was serious. It shows how serious your baptism was. Yes, you probably did not have the depth that you others maybe had or you thought others had the depth that hopefully you have now but your baptism was not done on a whim baptism itself gets a person wet that's it physically you get wet but spiritual things happen at baptism we don't want to lose sight of that spiritual things happen at baptism when Paul was recounting uh, God telling him to be baptized by Ananias, he recounts this in a couple of places in Acts. Acts 22 specifically mentions this, 22 verse 16, if you want to look it up. Uh, God said, be baptized, so God, or it was told to him, be baptized so God will wash away your sins. That's a spiritual event that occurs at baptism. I read to you Acts 2 where it says be baptized for the remission of your sins. The word there, remission, remit, the root word, means to break the bondage that is on you because of sin, the hold that sin has over you. That's a very powerful thing. That's a spiritual event that happens at baptism. I want to read with you 1 Corinthians 12, or I'd like you to turn there with me if you would. Another thing that happens at baptism you phrase it in terms of a question. Why do we get along with each other? Why do we find that there is a, a, a pleasant environment here at a church service, that there's a wonderful environment at uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or other feast days? It's just exciting to participate in these things. How does that come about? Because we're the same age, same career background, come from the same part of the country, all speak with the British accent. Oh, no, that was the sermonette guy. Why are we together? Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit were, we were all baptized into one body. Baptism brings us into unity with each other and makes the environment in the church of God, which we so deeply appreciate, possible. Romans chapter 6 has to be considered when we're talking about baptism. And when we're talking about rebaptism, it's necessary to go into some of the fundamentals of baptism. It'll be clear why, I hope, as we go along. Romans chapter 6 is perhaps the most detailed scripture in the New Testament about baptism. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Baptism is a line of demarcation in your life in your existence. Before baptism, you are unconverted. After baptism, you are converted. It is an indelible line. You're able to look back, you're able to remember, oh, you know, I remember such and such a year, maybe you have the date written down in your Bible. I was baptized. Why? Well, well for a number of reasons, we'll get into those. Let's read a few more verses, first of all. Certainly not, we don't continue so that, sin, or so that grace, can go, be a, grace can abound. How shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Verse 11 pretty well summarizes it. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are several one-time events that uh, occur at baptism, spiritual things. Now, there's a, there are spiritual events that occur leading up to it through a process of time, through your Bible study, through counseling, 
through messages, through your reading, you become aware of the fact that baptism is necessary. You reach a crucial point. You confess your sins, not to a minister, but to God. You talk to God and you said, okay, I, I, I learned, Father, this is your law. I recognize where I broke it. I recognize that I need to change that. I need to repent. You recognize that there is a debt for past sin, which is death, that is unavoidable. It cannot just be brushed aside. It must be paid. So there has to be a change come. You have to uh, reach out for that payment, which was Christ's sacrifice. Secondly, no longer is there any doubt in your mind about whether you will obey God. It's a dead issue. Will I keep the Sabbath? No, I will. Will I keep the holy days? I will. Will I tithe? I will. Will I pray? I will. Will I study? I will. Will I attend church? Yes, I will. I don't want to go on anymore and, and refuse to do these things or put them aside. They are important to me. I know I must act on them. You were profoundly convicted that you had to change. It was a true turning point in your life. Number three, through this process, you came to realize that you needed the power of God's spirit to make the full changes to continue to obey God and to live obediently. And you recognize through your study, through counsel, through reading the Bible, that the way to that was baptism and the laying on of hands by God's ministry. Number four, you recognize that this is also the only pathway to eventually being brought back to life as a spirit in the future. Read this in, in Romans 6. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we too will be brought to life. Number five, you then approach God's ministers about baptism, or at some point in this, you approach the ministry, and they guided you through preparation, and at the right time, baptized you. All of these are spiritual events. Number six, this was a deeper commitment than you have ever made to anything in your life. The third heaven is already calling. I hear it. That happened to me once in church. I turned around and looked behind me immediately. <laughs> Who's the idiot who left his cell phone on? I want to tell you a story at this point about an actual counseling about rebaptism by somebody who left the church for 20 years. This person grew up in the church, was baptized, and counseled everything, was baptized, and then drifted away, left the church, married outside the church, had children, raised the children, and then recognized at some point that she needed to be in the church. And she came back and began to attend. She counseled with the pastor. I was not the pastor at the time. I was an elder in the congregation. But working with the pastor, the, the woman asked me uh, if she could counsel with me. The obvious question came up as to whether her initial baptism was valid or whether she would need to be rebaptized. The answer may seem obvious. You can't be baptized and go away for 20 years and still have God's spirit. But the answer is not obvious. I didn't just say, well, yeah, look at the number of years, no question about it. We began to talk about what she could do spiritually now that she'd been back attending and, and in with the brethren. We talked, for example, about whether she could pray about more than just herself and her friends and her immediate family, whether she could pray. We talked about whether she had the conviction that God was hearing those prayers. We talked about whether she could see that God was answering those prayers. We talked about whether she could study the Bible and from it gain insights and inspiration, have some of those aha moments. You don't have those every time you read the Bible, but do you know what I mean when you're reading the Bible once in a while? You go, how did I miss that? Or, wow, that's inspiring. That, that's amazing. I don't mean intellectual things. I mean things that, that poke you right in the heart. And you have those aha moments, I asked her, during uh, Sabbath services, listening to sermonettes and sermons, and you think sometimes, minister peek into my mind last night. I was thinking these same things, and now he's giving a, a message about it right on the Sabbath. Those are very inspiring times. 
I talked with this lady about whether she felt like she fit in at Sabbath services, and I don't mean whether she felt like a married or whether she felt like a single or whether she felt old or young or whatever, but whether she could rejoice being with the brethren whether she sensed that there was a spiritual connection there, whether she felt like she belonged in that group and indeed looked forward to being a part of it and felt bad if she for some reason wouldn't be able to be part of it. After much counsel and prayer and talking about these things, she concluded she was confident she had God's spirit. I was convinced she had God's spirit. It was my judgment. It wasn't the judgment of the pastor that she had God's spirit. She did what Paul told Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 1, stir up the spirit that is in you. If you have God's spirit, it can be stirred up. If you don't, it cannot. I don't mean to oversimplify it, but it is that simple. Does the fact that you need to repent of something mean that rebaptism is necessary? Well, there's no question of what you need to repent more as, as time goes on. Christians grow in repentance. Can you imagine a Christian saying, okay, I'm going to mark this day on the calendar. What is today? January 7. Hey, January 7, 2023. This is the last day I have to repent. This is it. I mean, I'm, I'm home free, no more. It's like paying off the mortgage. No more mortgage payments, no more repentance for me. I, I've got it made. Well, no, no, that doesn't happen, does it? Read to you from Mr. Frank's member letter in February 2018, preparing for the Passover. He wrote, without repentance, there is no conversion. Without conversion, there is no Christianity. However many years we have been in the church, the most important thing for all of us is to maintain a humble and repentant attitude. I believe this is the key that makes the difference between those who've remained faithful and those who haven't. Self-examination followed by repentance and a sincere request for forgiveness and mercy. These are important themes for the Passover each year. He didn't suggest and be baptized again. There are many biblical examples of Christians needing to repent. I want to look at one in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm not going to take a lot of time on these. But the point will be very obvious, I believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as babes in Christ. Boy, Pretty strong words to come from the pastor, the apostle in this case, to a congregation. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. And you're even still not able. You're still carnal. There's envy and strife and divisions among you. Aren't you carnal and behaving just like unconverted people? For when one says, I am of Paul, another says, I am of Apollos, are you not yet carnal? Notice what he said later on, just a few words down, a few paragraphs later, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Wow. I would think he could have made a case that, frankly, some of you people need to line up at the baptismal pool again. But he did not. He said they needed to repent. There are three examples in the letters to the churches in Revelation about this. I'm just going to refer these, or refer to these. Revelation 2, to the church of Ephesus, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. That's serious drifting. So did Christ say, you need to be rebaptized? No, he said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Similarly to the church in Pergamos, he said, I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. That's pretty low spiritually. Who taught Balak to put a a stumbling block before the children of Israel, committing idolatry and sexual immorality. Thus you also have some there who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I also hate. Did Christ tell them they needed to be rebaptized? No, he said repent or else. I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation chapter 3, to the church of Sardis, Christ said, I know that you, I know your works. You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. You can't get lower spiritually than that. How about being rebaptized to be revived and brought to life? Christ's counsel, remember therefore how you, what you have received, 
how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Again, not to oversimplify, but the fact that you need to repent of something means that you need to repent of something. It doesn't necessarily mean by itself that you need to be baptized again or that your baptism was invalid. There is a matter of having faith in God's promise. I read this to you in Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized for the remission of your sins, and what? You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God promises that's what would happen. That is a spiritual event that God promised would happen at your baptism. The Bible reveals that God grants repentance. I'm going to give you four verses. You can write them down, look them up later to read them in context if you like, or just listen to them. They make the same point about different people. Acts 5.31. Acts 5.31. Him God has granted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.18. Acts 11.18. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Romans 2.4. Romans 2.4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And then 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25. In humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. God grants repentance to the Israelites, to the Gentiles, to people in the church, to people who are in the church who are having problems. Let's just say God grants repentance. Okay, let's expand on that. What does that repentance look like? Does it come with a tag that says just add water? God gives you repentance and say, you didn't have repentance yesterday, today you do. Okay, where's the water? Let's baptize you. When I purchase some electronic gizmo and it comes with batteries, I'm tickled. I'm really impressed. Now, batteries are cheap, but it's just just so much more meaningful that the batteries are right there. I can put them in and, and away it goes. Is that how repentance comes? Batteries are included? Just... Away it goes? Or was it these dread words, which you get sometimes with a package, some assembly required? Talk about parenting. Remember when you got your first uh, crib in a box and it says some assembly required, meaning a college degree in 20 hours? No, frankly, when God gives repentance, it comes with some assembly required. Needs action on your part. There's frankly action on the part of the ministry. It's an interesting way to think about repentance. We are all participants in the process. Let's expand upon God giving repentance. God began preparing for your baptism before the world was founded. Revelation 13 speaks of that. Before the foundation of the world, it was decided that Christ would become a sacrifice for sin. The Father and the Word decided that at a certain point in time, at the right time, the Word would become flesh dwell among men, live a perfect life, set a perfect example, and become a sacrifice for every repentant human's sins. That happened. And about 2,000 years ago, at the right time, the word came. He did live. He did die. He was sacrificed. He paid the penalty for sin. So the payment is now in place for those whom God calls and who respond to his calling. It is in place, but it is not yet applied. God called you individually at the appropriate time. Flashing back to the question of what repentance looks like. Does it come in a package that says, Sirs two, repentance for two? Or one that says repentance for six? If your wife was baptized when you were, are are you, this is not... This is mixing metaphors, grandfathered in. (laughs) Did you get repentance just sliding in on your wife's repentance or your husband's? If your parents came into the church or your grandparents or your great-grandparents, then you automatically slid in with that. Is that your repentance? 
God called you individually at the time that he deemed right for you. John 6:44. Mr. Franks has mentioned this a couple of times in sermons recently. Unless God draws you, you cannot come to the Father. No one can come to the Father. Well, wait a minute, my grandparents were in the church. You know, we often say, well, this is a third generation Christian. This is a first, uh, fifth generation Christian. I know what we mean, and I rejoice in it. In Sherman, I've got four grandsons who attend there, fifth one's coming along, three granddaughters, uh, some of them are in-laws, some of them may be outlaws, as far as I know. A couple of them are greats in there, the grandchildren. And, and you know, they're multiple generations. It's a wonderful thing. But you know what? There is no such thing as a second-generation Christian or a third-generation Christian or a third gener- or a fifth-generation Christian or fourth-generation Christian. What do I mean by that? I mean, God called you, whether your wife was being called at the same time or your husband, whether your parents have been called, or your grandparents, or your children, God called you personally, individually, at the time that was right for you. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. In James 1:18, James wrote about God of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Yes, we had something to do with it. No, it wouldn't have happened had we not decided to participate. But I want to salute here and recognize and emphasize how much God had to do with it. God opened your mind to his truth. He also made you aware of your personal sins and shortcomings. It wasn't just because you or I decided that we would do that on our own. Included in this calling was the conviction that we needed to act on what we were doing. That didn't just come because of our temperament or our personality or what somebody said. That's a spiritual act that God made to stir us to act on what we knew. What we knew. God delivers your repentance at specifically the right time when you're able to act on it. Someone was telling me about getting some a, a delivery and having to sign for it when the delivery came, and the deliverer missed the person who was going to receive it because the person wasn't there and had to coordinate it. I live at 601 Brook Drive, B-R-O-O-K. Coming right up to my driveway is another street that is Brock Drive, B-R-O-C-K, also drive. Now, I don't know what the city planner was on when they okayed the layout of the streets, but it just, it just wasn't nice. If you stand on my front steps and you look across my lawn and the lawn of the person next door, you're looking at number 601 Brock. 601 Brook is next door to 601 Brock. UPS comes to my door with his stuff. UPS goes to his door with my stuff, FedEx and so on, all kinds of misdeliveries. Did that happen with you? with God, with repentance? Did did he come with a package for your wife and you opened it? Did he come with a package for your parents but you opened it? That does not happen. These scriptures cannot be true if that happened. There is no, no sneaking in. Repentance is personalized, tailored to us individually. At some point in this process, God determined that you were ready for your one and only opportunity for salvation. He inspired you to seek baptism. He inspired the ministry to do its part to prepare you and to decide that you were ready to be baptized. That is, the ministry has to give its judgment. Another thing that happens when you you order things online, you get notes that say, parts of this shipment will come in different packages. That is true of repentance. You don't have all of these things that we've been talking about, all of these spiritual events at the same time. And frankly, they come some of the time because you are responding to God, and then he responds to you and gives more repentance as the repentance grows deeper until it is full. Then working through the ministry, God forgave every past sin of yours. Not future sins, but every past sin of yours. He judged all sin paid for by Christ's sacrifice. He did this at baptism. 
He then applied the previously made payment for sin of Christ's sacrifice to you, you, for your sins. In real time, he then gave you a new beginning, a fresh start. And lastly, through prayer and laying on of hands by the ministry, God at that time gave you the incomparably priceless gift of his Holy Spirit. Christ explained it this way, the Father and I will come and dwell with you at that point through the laying on of hands. They gave you the privilege of taking on their nature, their character, their power. Think of what all this means. No one stumbled into God's family accidentally. Nobody came through the door without having a ticket. Nobody came because of a spouse or because of a parent or because of a grandparent. Nobody becomes a part of God's family by accident. God's focus is entirely on adding sons and daughters to his family. He does nothing by whim. It is not a hobby for him. It's not a pastime. Oh, no, that guy got in here. Doesn't happen. An invalid baptism is not impossible, but it is highly, highly unlikely. Let's finish up in Acts again. In Acts chapter 18, I said not necessarily everybody baptized by John's baptism had to be rebaptized. I'm probably stuck in the mind of some of you. Acts chapter 18, let's read a few verses before chapter 19 and be introduced to someone whose name I've actually read to you two or three times already during the sermon. Apollos. Acts 18, verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. I think we've answered how it could be possible that he would know the things of the Lord if he was baptized only by the baptism of John, because John knew the things of the Lord and taught them and preached them. Nothing is said about Apollos being baptized again. Never mentioned. Why not? Maybe he was baptized and it's not mentioned. I don't know. You can't prove uh, something from a negative. Uh, maybe rebaptism was not necessary. Well, why would I say that? Why would that not be necessary? Expositor's Bible commentary weighs in on this. Apollos' knowledge of Jesus seems to have come through disciples of John the Baptist. Quote, he knew only the baptism of John. Either when he was in Alexandria or somewhere else in the empire, maybe even at Ephesus, presumably he knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. He knew something of Jesus' earthly ministry. He may have known nothing more. He was instructed further by Priscilla and Aquila, the Bible says, and then Apollos readily accepted all God had done in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. There's no suggestion that he was baptized then. As with some of Jesus' disciples, Andrew and probably the Apostle John were disciples of John the Baptist. You can read that in the Gospels. As with those disciples, probably Apollos' earlier baptism of repentance was considered Christian baptism when viewed as pointing to Jesus and was therefore not to be redone every time there was a growth in understanding. Nothing is said about his having received the Holy Spirit, though the nature of his later ministry leads to that assumption. Now again, this is speculation. You cannot prove that he was not rebaptized, but it is interesting that just a few words before these 12 are met, about whom it is said the same thing. They, had the baptism, they, knew, they were baptized in John's baptism, and they were rebaptized, and they knew nothing of the Holy Spirit. And here, Apollos knew so much. Did Apollos go on to be an eloquent minister just because he was an eloquent speaker? No, that's not how one becomes an effective minister. Let's think again about what Acts 19 shows us. Do the words into John's baptism mean that these 12 were disciples of John. It's a different way to put it. It means they had a baptism of repentance. Paul talked about that. 
Were they members of a different Christian faith? Was there a, a church of John? You say disciples of John. Is that like disciples of Christ as opposed to disciples of the Pharisaical tradition? No, there was no church of John. John did not have a separate church, a separate religious organization. Remember what John said of himself in regard to Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. His was a bridge work, truly. And if someone was truly a disciple of John, from all that we have read just in the sermon today, I submit that he would have known about the Holy Spirit, he would have known about Jesus Christ the Messiah, he would have known about the kingdom of God. These men did not know about those things, even though John did. So again, I ask the question, were they disciples of John or were they just baptized in the method of John? How could that be? Tyndale's commentary explains that when you look at the timing of this chapter here, Acts chapter 19, this occurred about 20 years after the ministry of John the baptizer. And it is in Asia Minor, far, far away from Judea where John worked. So how did these men get baptized? We don't know. Were they traveling in Judea and got baptized and left? Don't know. Did some who knew John's baptism travel to Ephesus and baptize them? We don't know. We frankly find different things today. We come across people in different pockets of the world who have church literature and have learned different things, maybe by word of mouth from family members, and they're practicing part of the faith. But what we do know is that these men were practicing only part of the faith. They had only part of the picture. I'm sure we don't have the full interaction between Paul and the Twelve, but after whatever interaction took place, whatever discussion took place, Paul correctly judged, you need to be baptized, and they correctly agreed, that's right, we, we just missed the whole picture, we didn't understand what we were getting involved in, and the judgment was made that they needed to be baptized again. The Expositor's Bible Commentary makes this interesting statement about chapter, these 12 people in Acts 19. Doubtless in Paul's mind, they were not rebaptized, but rather they were baptized into Christ once and for all. Why is that significant? It emphasized that there really is truly only one valid baptism. I emphasize valid water baptism. There have been people who have been rebaptized. Um, very, very, very few. If you have had questions about the validity of your baptism, if you have had questions and have been discouraged and wondering what your status is, what needs to be done, what can be done, I hope this is encouraging information to you. I hope it is encouraging to go back and reflect on the spiritual events that occurred leading up to and at your baptism, especially looking at what God did for you personally.